This is a Media Lab podcast. Dave, honestly, last week I think broke me. <laughs> what does that mean? That stupid movie, Death in Venice. Ugh. And I just, I don't even want to do our usual, make a funny little joke that everyone goes, ha ha ha. They always laugh. They always think it's like the best part of the episode, the cold open. And uh, this week I want to do something a little bit different. I just want to open it up. How is how is your week, Dave? Just tell me about your week. Oh my God. I don't know. What did we do this week? It's a we. I spent so much time with you now. Do we, uh, we watch any I, movies? We we watched a movie. Yeah. Um, or about to watch a movie, a very long movie. But you were you were spending some time on the holodeck. We can't actually legally call it that. But you, you know, you were at home. You were doing stuff. So yeah, like, what did you do with the, what would you do with the fam this week? Uh, what we do every week. We just live life. Stare at walls. <laughs> well, I, I honestly, this week, I felt like I was just like this, sitting in front of a computer for the entire, every day. I don't even have a real job, Kyle. I mean, this is a real job because we do a lot of stuff for this, but yeah. uh, we're not in office. And I, I feel like I was working day and night just to get caught up. I did have a, a fun experience with my other podcast, I cut them in half, as you may or yes. may not know, to try part to get one, them under half half an hour. And this one I cut in half. And Some eat... people say that's what we should do with this show. <laughs> and uh, this one I cut in half, and they're going to be an hour each. So that just gives you oh, an wow. idea of uh, what happened. Was it a particularly engrossing conversation, or was it like a fighty conversation? No, we didn't fight. I think it's. I think it's more about... I don't want to say specifically because he was a guest, but we'll say that uh, sure. there was right. a lot of very interesting information. Uh, you can check it out. It's called My Viewfinder. And as uh, he's a scientist, astrophysicist who uh, takes pictures. So did you say at any point in that conversation, it's not rocket science? <laughs> I wish I had, except that, you know what? We weren't in that energy. We weren't in joke oh. energy space. So that was one thing. We are working on video content and animation i have to actually show you some designs i drew you oh nice yeah yes we i we if you have not checked out the youtube channel you should there's actually some pretty fun stuff that we've been posting up over there um i i resonate with you talking about just sitting in front of a computer seemingly all day long i i don't know how you frame your your own personality whether you're an introvert extrovert i am a supreme introvert which means that if I do a lot of talking and interacting with people, I get physically drained. So like two days ago, I had, oh, it was like five meetings in a row. Oh my God. I think it was uh, like, it was basically four and a half hours straight of me, like just talking, interacting with people. And I crashed so hard. Like it was like, stop on the podcast. I like was doing like the little <laughs> tired cat thing, like the, the head bobs. Like I can't, I can't do it. So like I went and laid on my bed in like an hour and a half. I was just like boom. And then <laughs> you turned like, on totally like a five hour movie. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine what what are you doing that you're recording that much? Oh, well, some of it's recording, some of it is literally just meetings, just talking with people wow. and look at you. you know, I, I still have to run my company while we're out here in Entre space, Dave. Entrepreneuring. So. You're an entrepreneur. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Everyone says like, let's let's grab a coffee online. And then I always have to be like that person. Like, I don't actually have a coffee maker at home. So Aww. like, <laughs> I have my little water cup. I'm like, I'm, I'm drinking the water. <laughs> you could just buy some food coloring and make it brown. That sounds disgusting. Talk about that. You, uh, you brought this lovely assortment of cakes. Is there a specific one? 
I should be eating? No, uh, have any piece you want. And here's some tea uh-huh. I brought for you since you don't have any of your own. Um, and we'll lie down on this orgiastic cushion and smoke hookah. Great. Yeah. It is remarkable the amount of times per week you fit in the word orgiastic into the conversation. <laughs> well, it's, it's important. It's important, orgiastically. On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone, especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. My name is Kyle. I'm uh, Dave. And I'm The Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then the apocalypse actually happened. So somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. And we're now back on our way to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today... We're going to be watching the film Nicholas and Alexander. For 300 years, the Romanovs ruled Russia. They might have ruled for 300 more. But for the devastating force of events still reverberating through the history of our times. Within the eye of the storm that ravaged an entire continent, Beneath the pomp and ceremony of a dying dynasty is the tender and tragic love story that inspired Robert K. Massey's international bestseller, Nicholas and Alexandra. Sometimes I wonder. Once again, big thank you to our patrons, Green Girl, YYC, and It's a Conspiracy Podcast over on our Patreon. Dave, this is such a broad question I think we need to start with. Because this film is dealing with like the end of the Romanovs, the Russian Revolution. That's kind of where I want to start. Like, what is your history? What is your knowledge of that time period? Russian Revolution, end of the Romanovs. You know, I spent some time reading philosophical literature of this era. uh, And I think for the most part, people have a surface awareness of a lot of the birth of communism, the end of monarchical, monarchical, Monarchial, monar- Mon- end of monarchies, yeah. the end um, of the monarchy <laughs> uh, in general around this time. Because what? Sorry, when was when when was the Communist Manifesto published? Uh, like, is it late right 18th, before this, way yeah. before this. No, eighteen. I don't. I don't have a number in front of me, but eighteen eighty something. My all-time favorite fantasy novel. Uh, it's right before right. that. I mean, I can't remember if Karl Marx and Engels are still alive right. uh, when Lenin. You know kind of takes it to the next level, let's say. Right. Um, but it's it's direct, like they're uh, essentially an overlapping generation. So the Communist Manifesto and, and all of these new uh, ideologies fighting against the idea of divine right uh, all lead in together. I, I think coming out of the French Revolution and, and just generally Europe's like just tired of seeing these uh, in, inbred despots claiming that they were touched by the hand of God 
uh, so they can piss on you literally as you walk by them on the street. And there's a lot of factors, right? Like industrialization, education, um, the social mobility, a new type of working class, the abolition of slaves and serfs, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, uh, people are just like, you know what? This is stupid. I don't want to do this anymore. And then they go yeah, and this, cut off everybody's really heads. awful. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, again, my surface level knowledge too is that like the Soviet Union, Russia, however you want to term that area at this time period is very similar to the French Revolution in that you had like the elite of the elite and the grunts that were basically the majority of the population. And the elites were so gross. Well, gross, but like, so, uh, what's the right word? Like not understanding of what was really going oh, on. Yeah. They were, yeah. Uh, they were not, naive, not, not even naive. They were just like, so ignorant. They were completely ignorant of what was actually going on. That of course this revolution bubbles up because it's like, they can't even, they didn't even know enough to nip it in the bud because they were so separated from what reality was actually at the time. I, I, I don't know. Like, cause because you're just slightly older than me. Like, do you recall, like, seemingly, like, this huge burst in, the, like, the late 90s, mid to late 90s of, like, Anastasia yeah. fiction yeah. and stuff like that? Like, it seemed like it, like, exploded. And there's, I think, reasons that we'll talk about here in a moment of what, why that is. But, like, that was my first entry point. Is like, Anastasia. Like, there's all these people claiming to be, like, the lost daughter of the, the, the last Romanov clan. Yeah. And I remember watching, like, a bunch of, like, made for tv documentaries and like probably like 60 minutes and all that kind of stuff did stories on this so i was like at my first entry point into this story and then when you at least for me it was grade i want to say nine was when you learned about the three types of government systems which is there's more than three different types but that's how they presented it there are four there's democracy (laughs) yeah there's democracy there's communism and it's what Canada does, which is a which is a combination a of both. Uh, that that that's how they always, which was always funny to me because it was like we're going to talk about democracy, and that was like huge like amount of time. It's like now we're going to learn about like socialism slash communism. That was a huge chunk of time. And it's like and now we're going to learn about the mixed system that Canada does, and it was like two weeks. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, we're living. So it's it. no wonder that people, <laughs> yeah, people have such a, like a distance from like Canadian. Uh, systems of doing things but that's you know the speaking the last couple of weeks about the influence of fbi and the idea of sort of uh, capitalist propaganda uh, this is a prime example of it you know creating a polarity that one is 100 yeah. percent right one is 100 percent wrong and if we're in the middle fine you know who gives a shit ken is fine but just so that you yeah. know don't be a fucking communist and that's that's kind of that's a different era i don't know we'll see when emerson grows up if that's evolving or not. Because capitalism, America, isn't working so great for you right well, now. <laughs> that's actually a really good thing to bring up. Like, your son is probably not old enough really to even grasp no. those yet. Uh, Twitter is not the real world. Mm-hmm. I have to keep reminding myself this. Twitter is not the real world. Well, that's how I know you don't have a verified account. But, like, if you spend a lot of time on there or even on Reddit and stuff, it does feel like there is this push back against capitalism specifically where it's like we've been uh, sold this bill of goods that is not uh, able to actually sustain itself and that idea of like socialism maybe being like a better way of doing things is uh, being presented but i do actually find that like as soon as someone says communism like, no no no, we're not communists but we never go into like the communist bent 
Like, so there seems to still be that inherent, like, no, we don't want to actually associate ourselves with communism. <laughs> like, that is the ultimate evil. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is too much of a rabbit hole, but I think it's deserving because communism is essentially conflated. That's a good word. Is that, am I using it correctly? With, well, I haven't uh, used orgiastic again, but... Uh, you know, we'll, we'll Stalinism, which is, you know, using the ideology of socialist principles, which is that, you know, I don't know if it's a merit, meritocracy, but everybody's kind of like... We're all human and we can all help each other for the sake of the right. better good, which uh, as history has taught us, it's total bullshit. Uh, it's total idealism. Uh, and then turning it into a dictatorship because you need um, you need a structure of power to rule people. It, it's just part of human nature. We, we can't be left by ourselves. We will descend into the heart of darkness very quickly. Yeah. Um, because we're not rational, we're not robots. We don't follow functions. We have emotions and we do dumb things from time to time. You know what's what's fascinating about that and that's wrapped up in all of this is like, quote unquote, the market, the stock market and, and the whole idea of like financial services and that sort of thing. The, the very early stages of that, forget, I forget who the person was that wrote essays on this, but that was like his fundamental flaw was just like, well, people are, are naturally rational. So, of course, they're going to do like what, what's in their best interest. And that's been proven time and time again not to be true. Yeah. Well, I, is it J.S. Mill? But yeah, like there was uh, the original capitalist doctrines were, yeah, thinking that maybe not that people were rational, but that people ought to be. And so right. people ought to fit together like a machine because machines were so important in the, in the industrial age. Uh, as as it turns out, that doesn't work. But the, I think the difference in all of this, and this leads back to the sardom, is that there's what an individual person considers to be an ideal state of humanity, and then there's the reality where it's just a fucking mess. So the monarchies mm -hmm. existed for so long because the ideal state is you have God, you have a king, you have whatever the aristocracy is supposed to be, and then you have everybody else who's supporting this triangle. And when that broke, then we kind of, it's the same thing, actually. We have uh, corporations instead of kings, but we have this pyramid structure. Yeah. And then we saw communism try, and communism just put a dictator at the top uh, under the guise of a committee, a, a so-called communist committee, and then it became a triangle structure again. So there's something about human nature where we're always tending towards a power structure. So as much as I well, often well, am I bitter of capitalism, I don't have... A system that works so you know i just i just get well it. i mean capitalism and democracy are almost two separate things yes too. i think like they get wrapped up together but it is good to like step back and be like those are two different conversations to have for for me i thought that like this time period in russia specifically was always so fascinating like i again i know surface level stuff like i'm not a, like a deep scholar of lenin trotsky their differences what, what i always found compelling about it though and you see this kind of repeated through history is that you have this figure in Lenin, rabble rouser, you know, speaking truth to power, fall of the of the czars, you know, people come and take power. And then him realizing, well, now I have to lead. Right. And that's a whole different ball game at that point. It's like it's sometimes easier to be the person who throws rocks. And then it's like, well, now you be the person in charge. It's like, oh, well, this isn't as easy as I thought it might be. And that's. The problem with communism, you start off with the idea that everybody should be equal, but then when you get in power, everybody wants a peace and they all have yeah. different ideas. And you're like, no, you're all fucking wrong. So now right. you listen to me. 
Well, which I, is, again, this the, one of the biggest critics of that, of course, is um, uh, George Orwell. Uh, he writes Animal Farm right about that. It's like all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Right? Yeah. Right? You know, is that that's the philosophy that pigs are the he's best. ridiculing about communism in that book. Pigs get it. And the reality yeah, the pigs is, get it. the pigs, and the, the pigs understand. And the, and the reality is that is that most horses should be turned to glue. Well, I mean, it's just natural fact. How will you get to eat Jello if we don't get hooves? <laughs> right? I mean, we need that, that is true. We need the cloven foot. I've been told that that is not. That's a kind of a an urban legend that I that's actually know. not how it happens. But yeah. anyways, doesn't matter. Sometimes I eat hooves for breakfast. Do you have any history relationship with this film in particular? No. I have not heard about this film until literally last week when the machine told us that we needed to watch it. So I am excited to jump into it. I'm hoping that this is like this lavish biopic in the realm of like Lawrence of Arabia. I'm worried that it's going to be not that or it's going to be one of those stuffy British dramas that I find a little bit tedious to sit through. Wait, is it, is it going to be long? It is over three hours, Dave. <sighs> this is... Three hours and eight minutes, I think, is what the runtime is. We're being tortured by your machine. <laughs> maybe. Or maybe but, rewarded. This could be great if we yeah, had well, not watched it yet. <laughs> yeah, let's, uh, let's go and find out. I'm going to go thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be talking about the movie Nicholas and Alexandra. Hey there, everyone. Just Kyle breaking into the conversation one more time to tell you about some of the great people that keep this show going. And can I just say, whether it's the man or the machine that's keeping you down, the podcasting proletariat will break through. They will find justice. Podcasting workers of the world unite. Maybe I should start a movement. I do want to let you know that Cal and Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This week, Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is brought to you by Pod Power. With Pod Power, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a Pod Power shout out to Overdue Finds. Overdue Finds is an Edmonton Public Library podcast. Bryce Crittenden and Carolyn Land host conversations about books, movies, music, pop culture, and other interesting news about Edmonton. It's a great way to learn more about what's happening at EPL and how much you can use your library card to access all of EPL's in-person and online services. To listen and find out more about Overdue Finds, head to epl.ca slash podcast. This episode is also brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta, offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. If you switch providers, nothing changes about the delivery of these utilities to your home or business. If you have an existing contract, you're going to want to find out the terms before leaving. If you don't, then it's even easier to sign up for Park Power. You, as the consumer, have the choice of who you pay your bills to. Why not choose your friendly local utilities provider? Learn more at parkpower.ca. All right, Dave, was that invigorating or was that a snooze fest for you? Well, I'm glad there was an intermission. <laughs> yeah, I got... Uh, actually, to be honest with you, the intermission came, I thought, really early in this film. Usually it's like... 
two for a three hour film it's like after the two hour mark and this is like an hour and a half in it's like intermission so that was nice to go and stretch my legs i um i don't know it's yeah i will say this i mean it is shot like a 1950s biblical epic Mm. Um, it's slow and grinding, but the subject matter is so dramatic in and of itself that by the end, it's actually quite, uh, I don't want to say, it's engaging because Mm -hmm. you kind of want to see how this is all going to break down. But the first hour, uh, it's a grind and uh, it's not bad, but it's, like if I was in a theater, I I don't know if I'd walk out. I might've fallen asleep. Unless we were in Dolby Atmos, but you know, in 1971, you're just in a chair in a in a room. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I might have fallen asleep. To be honest with you, this is the first film that we have watched in 1971 where I'm disappointed that I couldn't watch this in a theater. Not that I think this is great. I I'm kind of aligned with you in that I find this a bit tedious. There are flashes of greatness, I think, that poke itself through. But by and large, it's like, okay, this is a, kind of a by the numbers. This happens, this happens, and this happens without really feeling the connective tissue. But it's so gorgeous. It's like, I would love to see this in that ultra wide, biggest screen possible that you can throw this up on and just kind of get lost in the production design of it all. I, I am on record as saying that I am 100% influenced by the looks of films. Like, if I just think it looks pretty, that's like an extra star I can give to movies just because I just enjoy looking at it. And and that's kind of the thing here is like, even with my surface level knowledge, there's certain things and, and sequences that happen that I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I know what's going to happen here. And it's fun to kind of see that uh, projected through film. I think it's also obvious why the filmmakers wanted to make this story happen because there's a lot of innate drama in it. I But I feel that they kind of dropped the ball as far as centering it around the czar and his wife, because I almost find them to be the least interesting people of this movie, which is too bad because there is there is ways, I think, to dramatize that story. They just seem to be uninterested in doing so or incapable of doing so. Like these very famous Russian figures come in with really no, like you kind of have to know who they are for it to actually even make any sense or carry any weight. I bring this up a lot of times, but this is probably, I'm assuming, how a lot of people uh, view certain superhero films that I'm like, oh yeah, of course I know who this like bit character is that showed up in like a two issue arc and that they're like doing the fan service because there's people who come in here that I'm glad I had, I had actually Wikipedia open just like cross-checking sometimes throughout this because like I have no idea who this person is that they're talking to and I have no idea why they're important. So yeah, that's kind of where I fall on it. I, I don't think it's outright bad, but it is pretty boring in a lot of the points of it which i do think is different than bad you know what i got a sense of is um it felt a bit apologist like it was mm. i think trying very consciously to tell a story about the czar and the czar czarina czarista czarina Zar- she doesn't Zarina, make coffee yeah. yeah she doesn't make coffee so <laughs> well, she might she might yeah. yeah actually the way she's portrayed probably not she, she was such yeah. an asshole um she does not know how to froth milk she's awful and uh from what I briefly understand, that czar, just on the surface level, is supposed to be a, a despot, a tyrant. But And I don't well, know... Well, both, both a tyrant and... So, honestly, the best example, not that he has to be brought into every conversation for political uh, discourse, but he was kind of like a Trump figure in that, a little bit tyrannical, like blows his top and gets angry, but 
easily persuadable by the last person who talked to him. Apparently, that's the biggest thing that people talk about is like, if you got by him by himself and talked to him, you could kind of change his opinion uh, if you were able to persuade him. And that would change the next day <laughs> if when someone else talked to him. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I don't I, I don't know the specifics of that, but definitely as far as killing his own people. <laughs> yes. And, yeah. you know, that reputation of Ru- Russia has this particular and China, this uh, this the army tactic of the sea of humans. Mm-hmm. You know, they have such a population dense area that when they go fight, it's less about tactics. I mean, I'm sure they have great military strategists. But the reputation is that they just overwhelm you with bodies. Yeah, just throw bodies at them. And I mean, I think that is one of the small effective things in this movie where you, again, see that disconnect between the reality of the warfare and the people at the top making the plans. Because that's what they say. It's like, well, we have like the X amount of people. There is no way that they can overwhelm us. Let's just throw bodies at them until they're overwhelmed. And then you go to the front lines and there's people like, eating shoes for dinner because there's no food to feed raw this army. rabbit like, or whatever when the guy raw kills the officer no. yeah we'll get into this a little bit more in the contact setting this is written before everything was known about what actually happened right presume like yeah as far as what what we know or what we like to what know we now, now know is the history of the romanovs and the final days and what was going on behind the scenes really did not get revealed until the 90s yeah i was disappointed that black widow wasn't in this movie <laughs> yeah miss opportunity this that would be such a deep cut if this turned out to be like part of the, the origin the story actually <laughs> yeah. you know what who knows when the black widow movie actually comes out maybe there it probably will have some nod standing behind nicholas in one of the throne room scenes uh, like, oh, he's there the whole time you know the other thing that's happening in this era so if you look at the history of warfare and history of kingdoms it's pretty disgusting in a current modern day empathetic lens so we always i think Uh, after socialism, we look at the results of war and we ask ourselves individually, would I sacrifice 500,000 of my compatriots to die blood, death in trenches? Absolutely, yes. And we like to think no. Uh, It's probably, that's probably not true, actually. If if history has taught us anything, if we're in a position of power and we're protecting that power, we're going to do gross things. But I think what's this movie and this time period show is that the counter uh, culture thing is not another king fighting them, it's intelligence and education. And so you have a, a mass that's now able to read, so we have literacy, and we have an indentured public population that doesn't uh, accept that that's their station in life anymore. And so when you see the, uh, uh, whichever massacre it was, when the priest is leading the uh, factory workers to the I square. I think that's Bloody Sunday. Bloody Sunday. Um, it's factory workers that are marching. That is yeah. not something that used to happen in the 16th or the 15th century because, you know, they didn't even, there just wasn't that mechanism. And the amount of people that would even be politically aware lives in the aristocracy and they would have been a very, very minute piece. The sad, weird thing that I've always wrestled with studying this type of history is it's a bit hypocritical because the people that like Lenin, the people that lead the revolution are actually from the aristocracy because you need to have leisure time, especially in the West to like formulate ideas, right? I mean, if you're working 18 hours a day in a fucking gulag, you're not writing down your political thoughts. You're doing what Kyle done. You're nodding off after a couple of meetings, (laughs) right? A little tired kitty. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. Uh, So this is, it's a, that's the thing. This movie is too long. It's too old-fashioned. 
It's well, rigid. I mean, honestly, yeah. I actually have the inverse criticism of that. I don't think it's long enough because there's so much stuff that they're trying to push into this. Like nowadays, this would just be a Netflix miniseries. This yeah. is, that's what, how they would make this. It would be eight episodes, an hour long, sumptuous to look at. And then everyone would forget about it in a day. A lot more sex. <laughs> after they, after yeah. they powered through it. Yeah, a lot more sex probably. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it what's interesting too is like this obviously was made in 1971, still in the middle of the Cold War. So it's interesting that like there's this grappling with Russia and wanting to kind of understand like their backstory. I, I think people were hungry for that. I can't help but contrast it with nowadays where modern day historical films like set in this time period of like castles and like ornate dresses ornate dress and and clothing are almost intentionally not falling into what this does which is like your standard like very slow moving formal language and everything i'm I'm just thinking of things like the favorite or the great series that's on prime uh even like um emma that just got released here earlier in the year uh, all of these shows are basically, they're still all in that clothing, uh, but it's like rock music and, and like hip hop and stuff is playing for the soundtrack. They might be just using modern day language and stuff like that. Uh, so they're still like sort of using the look of the of these films, but like updating it for a modern audience at the same time, um, which I think is also probably what would happen if they were to try and adapt this again. They could probably have the same sets and dress, but like, let's update like this so people are a little bit more engaged with it. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think a few of those examples are more historical fiction. And so you get more liberty with that. When you're doing something like this, where it's supposed to be almost like a biopic. I mean, this is actually a biopic and it tries so hard to stick to history in its in its own way. Yeah. Yeah. Adding like Earth, Wind and Fire. And we talked about this in the earlier episodes about how that culture's in the midst of changing. So if you're right. in England building an epic, you don't think to bring in, you know, uh, the Rolling Stones or the Beatles to underscore it. Maybe they could have, but I don't know who would fit this mood. But while you're talking, you know what? The other thing I had, this thought I had is, uh, I mean, maybe this is a British thing of that era. It is not vilifying communism at all. No, uh, yeah, not really yeah, at all. Lenin Isn't and Trotsky don't yeah. come out as mo- monsters, and their uh, egregious sort of uh, their own despotic actions are cut off. They, we don't get into what happens after the death of the Tsar. Yeah, it very much is like it's like we're just showing you stuff and not really commenting on it at all. Yeah, um, I think you do eventually feel sympathy. Uh, uh, I texted this to you, which is weird because we're sitting right next to each other. That's I how we communicate. This modern. That's how we yeah. communicate. I actually do think that the final eight minutes of this movie are phenomenal. I think it's like, oh, okay, so this, the people here are actually very talented filmmakers, and not just here like to shoot like your the the obvious shots of this biopic because it's like do you sound really effectively, silence very effectively, the ticking of the clock as we know that the shooting squad is about to come down and kill everybody. Spoiler so all alert! That stuff, yeah. Well, <laughs> spoiler alert for real life that that's over a hundred years ago. They don't yes. make it. Yeah. But that was all very fascinating to me. Like, oh, I wish like the rest of the movie had this type of energy and this type of like art artistry behind it too. Yeah, to your point, even though we know they're all gonna die, there's so much suspense when they're sitting in that room and when the when the people burst in with their or walk in with their machine guns or with pistols, I can't even remember which. Yeah, you get that tension because you've built a small relationship, even though the son turns into Satan incarnate by the end and he's just fucking, it's like an exorcist movie. This, the shit he's saying to his dad is, gets so creepy. Uh, you don't want him to die. 
right? You don't want these yeah. girls who are portrayed as cherubs to die. I mean, apparently right. they're assassins, as we'll learn later in the Marvel universe, but, um, <laughs> right. yeah, you yeah. know, they're just hanging out. I, you know, the other thing that was interesting, I, in a cynical way, thought that they were going to be taken advantage of on several moments uh, after the fall. So on the train, uh, when the guards are like eyeballing them in, in Siberia, and uh, that just didn't happen, which I think yeah. is also a call out to uh, the confusion of that era where even though people are revolting, these are people, the, 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 the royal family is still, you know, whatever, touched by God. I mean, they are yeah. still above, a station above the commoners. So there's a fascinating... There's a lot of things you could pull out of yeah. it. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, that and the church and, and that relationship with the royal family, yeah. um, even even as like the, the fall of the czars were happening, and, and to this day, like the royal families, yeah, they're considered relics, like the things that they wore, their bones, even like all of that. It's it's interesting. Um, let's do this. Let's do some backstory, and then we can delve a little bit further into this. So Nicholas and Alexandra was released on November thirtieth, nineteen seventy one, in London first. It is rated 7.2 on IMDb. There is no available rating on Metacritic, but on Rotten Tomatoes, from 15 critics, it's at 67%. And then from 1,000 plus users, it's at 78%. So not a huge uh, number of people, have, I don't think, have even watched this movie. But it is available on DVD and Blu-ray, and it can also be rented or purchased from iTunes, at least here in Canada. Its budget was around $9 million dollars. However, it only made about $7 million at the box office in 1971, which is about $45 million with inflation. So this was a bit of a bomb at the box office. Just to put that in contrast, Sweetback, Sweetback's badass song made $10 million bucks, and this three-and-a-half-hour epic yeah. didn't even come close made, to that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Sweet Sweetback made more money than this movie did. <laughs> All right, I'll keep going, sorry. If you combine the budget and what it made, Sweet Sweetback still made more money. Um, anyways, its plot description is Tsar Nicholas II, the inept last monarch of Russia, insensitive to the needs of his people, is overthrown and exiled to Siberia with his family. This is pretty curt, uh, eh? Pretty curt. It uh, stars Michael Jaston as Nicholas, Janet Suzman as Alexandra, Tom Baker as Rasputin, Ian Holm as Yokolev. I'm going to butcher these names. Yeah. Brian Cox as Trotsky, Michael Bryant as Lenin. And two full pages of other actors in the credits to this movie. There are so many people. Bilbo Baggins is in this movie. You know, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, Lawrence Olivier is in this movie for like five minutes. But Lawrence Olivier is connected to every. I think I have a feeling he actually cast this film because uh, he sort of did. Actually, we'll get into that. Yeah, so, because yeah, these are all people did. that studied under him. But uh, uh, anything you want to say about any of these actors, though? Uh, not really. I mean. I didn't spend too much time finding much background. There was very little uh, meat out to readily available because this is a bit of a generation behind. All of them I mean, are Brian classic- Cox. Like I, I don't know if this is his first movie or not, but like Brian Cox, of course, would go on to be pretty reliant. A character actor is on Succession on HBO currently and no tearing it up over is. there. Yeah, sorry. He says cocksucker a lot. Cocksucker is a good word. Or motherfucker. I can't remember. There's a word that he uses a lot. I just watched a Sam and Jackson movie and I just remember how good motherfucker. I'm going to start using that, except I'm not that angry anymore. Um, uh, t- Tom Baker's clearly yeah, Tom your, Baker's dar- probably, your darling. Well, this is the only thing. <laughs> well, I love him in this role, first of all. I think he is the standout in this movie. He plays creepy and realistically persuasive, I think, at the same time. Like, there's this fine line. Like, he looks creepy. And yet I can still understand why 
why people would be taken under his spell. So like you have to like, that's a very fine line you have to run down. But I mean, he would a few years after this become Doctor Who. Like that is basically how most people are going to know Tom Baker. I didn't watch And if it. you don't know anything about Doctor Who, you'll probably know the one with the huge, long uh, scarf. Sounds like it, th that's his version of Doctor Who. Sounds like Harry Potter. I, uh, <laughs> I don't Doctor Who, but as soon as I read that he Doctor Who'd, I figured you would be a big fan of him. Uh, he's I'm not also a big Doctor Simpsons... Who fan, to be perfectly honest, but I just know of his reputation. He's also apparently was a regular voice actor on Simpsons and Futurama. So I just I just assume you have a poster of him somewhere on your wall. Uh, he's great. He he's very well known for his voice. Like he's got a good people voice. People know his voice. Yeah, yeah, the Christopher Lee thing. He's got that uh, the 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 baritone. The baritone. Yeah. I think isn't this his first movie? I'm pretty sure. I think this is his first movie because he was a theater actor up until this point. And he got to the theater quite late, which I think is fascinating too. He's got a strange sort of uh, progression, Merchant Navy and all this. Yeah, and Merchant Ivory, yes. I think all of these people uh, are being, are, you know, are born or living through either the first, but particularly the Second World War. So it mm -hmm. is always fascinating, in, as we're finding in the 70s, that these are... This is a generation we can't comprehend. You know, to be an actor after watching the worst, uh, presumably the worst crimes against humanity and one of the bloodiest wars of all time, either serving or being a child during that era uh, and then going into film, many of these people are quite politically aware and intentional, like in the roles they choose and how they express themselves. So a lot of these people have, like they're knighted. You know, I think Jane Suzman is a dame. Her her aunt is apparently somebody that like fought against apartheid in South Africa. There's a lot of oh, wow. fascinating. These these are very interesting people overall. We could use some interesting people on this podcast. What, what I keep writing up against, I have to keep reminding myself that this is the year 1971. So even when there's young people, like let's say early 30s, that still means like they were either born during World War II or out of the aftermath of World War II and have you know this history of like they would have been growing up through the 60s and all that revolutionary stuff and now into the 70s now uh and that feels like well that's way that's super long time ago but not for them it wouldn't have been because <laughs> that literally is their childhood as they're growing up through it or if they're the writers are 50 years old they very well could have like been born out of the uh first world war and then uh, gone through the second world war as well i think we're seeing that too i mean as we go through 1971 I, i'll get a better feeling for this but i suspect most of the writers generally are older than the actors and directors that take part in uh, directors actually uh, maybe that's not true but uh, the production part will be older people more established mm -hmm. people and so you're going to get i think a a cultural bias somebody that's grown up in the 30s or 20s in england uh, lives through the war, decides to write a screenplay, is going to have a very specific worldview. And then somebody who's born in 1960 or 19, even 1946 and becomes 20 years old uh, by the late 60s, they have no personal connection to the war. They just have the pressure they get from their parents and they're going to have a fundamentally different worldview. So it's this is a, this is actually a fascinating time seventy one where we mm -hmm. already saw it with uh, Andromeda Strain and some of the paranoia from the Cold War. We saw it with black exploitation and this push for civil rights and activism. And here we have something written by uh, it turns out Edward Bond's kind of an asshole, and uh, he's not even. I, I actually I actually don't know much about him. I didn't research. I know about everybody else, but yeah, I don't know if we want to get into the writers, but it, it's pretty well. Yeah, so this was written by James Goldman, 
with additional dialogue by Edward Bond based on the book Nicholas and Alexandra by Robert K. Massey, directed by Franklin J. Schaffner. Uh, let's start with that book, though, the full title of which is actually Nicholas and Alexandra, an intimate account of the last of the Romanovs and the fall of Imperial Russia. That Pulls right be, off the tongue. That should be the synopsis of this film. <laughs> That's right. No. So Robert Massey was a journalist and historian, and in the mid-60s, he has a son who was soon diagnosed with hemophilia, ah. uh, which he knew the Tsar Nicholas's son, Alexei, had. And because of this, he was inspired to research him a little bit more uh, and write this book. Now, remember, as I've already stated, this book would have been published well, over 50 years from now. Uh, so we're very much in the middle of the Cold War, and there are things that simply weren't known about the Romanovs. A little bit more than that in just a second. But So he publishes this book, and it becomes somewhat of a surprise bestseller. Producer, Hollywood producer Sam Spiegel, becomes interested in this project, in part because David Lean prevented him from working on Dr. Zhivago. Oh. So Dr. Zhivago had come out a few years before this, right? So Sam Spiegel was still mad at this. Um, Sam Spiegel seems to be a bit of an asshole, but he was this producer responsible for some pretty big heavy hitters in the previous 20 years. So things like The African Queen, On the Waterfront, The Bridge on the River Kwai, and Lawrence of Arabia. The story goes that the falling, falling out with David Lean came about because Spiegel pressed on Lean during Lawrence of Arabia to hurry up and finish the film. And because David Lean is such a perfectionist, he basically told Spiegel to fuck off. <laughs> uh, and so then he would not let him work on or be the producer on Dr. Zhivago, which was his follow-up. Spiegel still wants to do something with Russia. This book has come out. He initially wants to make this film without paying for the rights because it's technically a history event. But because they're using so much of what it was newly researched, he eventually has to uh, pay for the rights of the novel or rights of the book. And so he hires James Goldman to write the script. Goldman started off as a playwright, the most famous of which would probably be The Lion in Winter, which would be adapted into the film version starring Katherine Hepburn and Peter O'Toole. I know James Goldman very well because earlier in 1971, he wrote the book for the musical Follies uh, with music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. You can check out the podcast for these together if you want to hear an entire season on that show. Plugs, plugs plug. and more plugs. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Uh, he's also the brother to novelist and screenwriter William Goldman, the guy behind The Princess Bride, but also Marathon Man, All the President's Men, Heat, A Few Good Men, Misery, Maverick, and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So talent runs in the family, I suppose. But little films, little films. Just little <laughs> films. Back to James. So he's put into this really rough situation because this project goes to at least four different directors, maybe even more. And each director wants this huge rewrite to the script because each person wants to focus on something different, which I, this is like a little sidebar, me editorializing here a little bit. I, f I think that's probably why it feels a little bit fractured is that every director who came on probably added in a different element. Anyways, he feels frustrated. So Goldman, James Goldman goes to the movies and what movie does he see? But Patton, he loves this movie. So he recommends that the director of that movie, Franklin J. Schaffner, should be the director for this film. And so Schaffner accepts and stays on. Schaffner has this wild career because he's one of those directors where when you look at all the films that he's done, I don't think it really makes much sense. But he starts like so many of the directors that we talk about in television. His first feature length film was 1963's The Stripper, starring Joanne Woodward and Richard Boehmer. But then he goes on to direct Planet of the Apes. So, that kind of, so he's worked with uh, Charlton Heston, who we've talked about here already. He then does Patton, which wins him, which wins him his best directing Oscar. 
then this, and then he goes on to direct things like Papillon, The Boys from Brazil, Yes, Giorgio, this huge flop that came out in the 80s starring Luciano Pavarotti, and then fizzles out in the 80s with Lionheart and Welcome Home. It's like a very weird career. What did you want to talk about as far as uh, Bond goes, Edward Bond? After I wrote it, I realized he didn't play a big part, but apparently he's like this very controversial playwright that wrote something that challenged and broke the censorship laws in England. The play mm. is called, one second, blah, 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 Saved. And there's like apparently a scene where, uh, uh, what is it? Like a baby is stoned to death. And like, it's just, Oof. it's like, a, he's like this guy. And apparently he's very hard to be around fought with everybody that put on even like put on one of his plays and what they kind of skim around is i have a feeling he's very um anti-establishment and kind of one of these so-called mavericks but i I started skipping through because when i realized he just did the dialogue i didn't want to spend too much time here but essentially i think every one of his plays is exceptionally violent they're anti-establishment he's he's just a very political dude there's a picture of him on the wikipedia and it looks like a uh a spy shot. It might be like a, a file photo from the FBI, but this guy was definitely on He's actually boycotting. He's actually from, a supporting character in Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Actually, I, I think he had a play, uh, part to, uh, did he write it? I can't remember. I think All he's right. related to Tinker Taylor, but I, I could be wrong. He is, uh, he was banned from making uh, plays in England for a while. So that tells wow. you something. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I don't know exactly how much he worked on it. I couldn't find much information. It's a dialogue. About what, so like what exact, like what dialogue he was writing anyways. So, uh, Schaffner is coming off his best director Oscar win for Patton. Uh, it doesn't sound, it doesn't seem like this was a particularly rough shoot at all. Things seem to have gone pretty well, other than that some of the original actors that the producers and director wanted for the roles either turned them down or weren't able to do it. So you'll notice in the credits actually to this movie, there's like with special thanks to the Royal National Theater for the use of some of their actors. So Lawrence Olivier, who is in this movie, was the director of that theater at this time. And recommended a few of his actors be in roles from the movie and that the theater receives special acknowledgement in the credits because of that. Biggest one, of course, is Tom Baker, as this was one of his breakout roles. Now, since the time of this release, it has been noted that there are historical inaccuracies. Oh my God, my monocle just fell from my eye. Now, to be fair, the Soviet Union would not release certain records. Uh, so there was no real way to know that at the time of the book was published or the time that this movie was released. I will also just say my own opinion is like anytime there is a historical movie, you do kind of have to you gotta bridge it. shuffle things yeah, around yeah, yeah. and abridge things. Yeah. But anyways, so some of these inaccuracies include how Rasputin came into the family and how he was killed. And also the execution of the Romanovs was much different and very much more tragic in real life. Like if you read up on that, it's like much more brutal. Uh, in the 90s, in the early 90s, when the Soviet Union was dissolved, a bunch of records were released, and that's when inaccuracies became more apparent. So Robert Massey would then write a follow-up called The Romanovs, The Final Chapter, which corrected many inaccuracies that were in the original book. That was published in 1996, and in part is what helped spark the obsession with Anastasia and the Romanovs again. Um, I would probably say that in the 1997 animated film. but uh, Underrated, that yeah, film. it's pretty good. There had always been conspiracy theories about the fates of Anastasia and Alexei as their bodies weren't technically found until much later on. There's actually a whole thing in Russia right now where they have the bones, but they need to do further testing because to the church, royal, bone, royal bones are these religious relics. 
it's a whole big thing that's still like <laughs> taking years and years to go. Black this Widow. movie would be nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, plus five other nominations. It would win for Best Art Direction and Best Costume Design, which, I mean, I think is fair <laughs> as far as what it's going to well, we haven't We haven't seen the rest of the films yet. Right? I don't. Yeah, I also feel like uh, the Academy has a bias towards period films. I mean, you know, whatever you, do you mean, yeah. Dave? I don't know. <laughs> costume, you you throw on. Are uh, you telling me that any Victorian set film is going to automatically win best costume design? Yes, like it has for the past thirty five <laughs> years. <laughs> you throw you throw a couple of uh, bedazzled dresses in there, and they're like, you know what? This is great. This is what this we want to see more of. Yeah, <laughs> tiaras. We need more tiaras in the Hollywood landscape. So as far as a discussion point, I actually wanted to frame this. We, of course, are the two best people to talk about this. I'm Russian. Um, yeah. But we, well, I, I want to talk about female representation. So, of course, we are the two best people to talk about this. I feel very offended but today. Yeah. We've we've had this, I think, uh, string of this conversation that started kind of in uh, Shaft and then into Sweet Sweetbacks. But then also last week, as far as like homosexual representation specifically about how women are portrayed in this movie i feel this is me talking so alexandra that name is in the title and i feel like she is like the least focused on in this entire film her role in the czar actually stepping down is much more obvious i guess if you read like the real life histories and i'm wondering if this was just because male creators, male director, et cetera, et cetera, just kind of sideline her 100% and like what her actual role was. And part of that is the misogyny that was there at the time as she was seen as like this German like witch coming over here and like trying to voice her own thoughts and feelings on the czar. So there was like that misogyny and like racism at the time and then also when they make this movie it's like well the women don't really matter we're just going to focus on the men and what they were doing yeah i i generally agree with you i think that i mean i, I don't know why other than pay, I, I agree there's a strong patriarchy is a overused word but sexist there's a sexist mm -hmm. writing yeah. where you have male heroic or tragic figures that are driving the narrative and to be fair you know alexander uh, nicholas is the czar whatever that yeah. means and in russia whomever is holding the crown is going to essentially be making all the executive decisions so you i mean there's a lean there uh, the first thought i had when you were speaking is you know russia in particular and england have had very powerful queens in their history and empresses. So it is interesting to reflect on what it must have been like. I can't remember when Catherine's around, but is it like the late 1700s? And then 120 years later, do we really have a sexist population that dis, you know, disassociates itself from being ruled by a powerful empress who actually created the Russian you know, uh, dominance, this culture of, uh, of winning the world? I don't know. Mm. Um, I think that it's not necessarily racism yet but political um intrigue and i don't know nationism certainly her coming from yeah, nationalism maybe nationalism. a better word to use when you have a queen that's born and coming in from your enemy country <laughs> you're kind yeah. of in a problem although they're all intermarrying and if you're well, like, they're all related to each yeah, other like it's gross yeah like he's he's the cousin to king george yeah, at the time and they're, sex and they're related to the people in sisters. france and germany you gotta keep like, it in the family they're all related you gotta keep it in the family <laughs> yeah and if you gotta 
marry your sister. That's what it takes. That's what it takes. Right, England? Yeah. How can you possibly think that Prince Charles looks inbred? Well, I, get, I think what I'm really driving at here is this sense that is really starting to be picked away at now and has been over like the last couple of decades, which is that history has had this failing in really only focusing on the quote unquote great men of history. And that's how we tell the stories. It's just these great men. When oftentimes it's a lot more complicated than that. It's not just them making a sole decision. There's all these other people and actors that kind of help support that. But it's why we don't have you know, widespread knowledge of like how women had a hand in um, uh, the Industrial Revolution, but also the advent of computers and the technology boom and all this other stuff. Um, aerospace design, like all this stuff is like there is a lot of women and oftentimes women of color that we're pushing these things forward, but we just don't talk about it. We just focus on like the great people or quote unquote, the great people who are usually white men in history. Well, this thing, you know, what's the, the adage? Uh, history is written by the, by the victors. By the victors. Um, we live, we have lived predominantly in a society of white privileged men uh, who are, were the literate ones predominantly until around this time, around the 19th, uh, end of the 19th century and early 20th century. So, you know, if you're a laid back white dude and someone asks you what happened 200 years ago, you'd be like, you know what, you know, Robbie, Robbie did this and, you know, Bobby did that. And, you know, this is really what happened, even though I'm not, I often distrust written history anyways, for this reason, there's a cultural bias uh, if it's written down, I don't believe it. Well, it's fascinating, you know, like like this idea that we had the picture of the Tsar coming out of um, World War Two and or even uh, World War One and the fall of that empire. It's uh, altered around World War Two because we have anti-communist uh, propaganda coming out, and then after the fall of communism, or presumably the fall of uh, the USSR, anyways. Now we have something different, right? And uh, so, which is real? I, I don't know. It, uh, that classic example, uh, not classic, that example I brought up at our podcast brunch club meeting of uh, how Europeans treat Neanderthals now. I mean, there's there's something about human beings being entrusted with recording the truth of their experience that is total bullshit. And uh, well, I mean, I mean, yeah, so you always have to be aware of bias, but the simple fact of what you decide to record is a bias. Yeah, right? exactly. Why is this battle here more important than this battle over here? I think this is why a lot of uh, people- You can get into that conversation, which can get super complex because then it's like, well, why talk about anything? Because nothing has, there's no ever objective truth. And then those are boring conversations sometimes. I think that's like your your favorite writer. I think that's one of the powerful lasting influences of Shakespeare. Even though uh, black people and women are often characterized as villains and villainesses, there's such a strong representation of active participants in in politics of that era, which you won't get in historical books. You know, you'll often not hear about queens, mistresses, and uh, concubines influencing court culture. They often are put to the side as sex objects or uh, dowries or whatever the the right term is, and that's just strictly impossible. Anyone who's in a relationship knows that whomever your partner is, business partner, sexual partner, whatever, uh, they don't just sit on the side. <laughs> And yeah. pop up when you need some drama. I mean, you know, friendships are like that. You don't just not be influenced by whomever you hang out with. So the women in this movie are uh, definitely portrayed that way. They're side characters. There are moments when Alexandra, I don't know if she deserved an Oscar nomination. We can maybe poke at maybe that not, a little bit. Yeah. But you do. they do try to show that she uh, pushes his weak ego, you know, that uh, she's an agitator 
for all of the poor decisions. A little bit woman yeah. blaming because, uh, you know, right. it, it does seem like she's manipulating him to be so selfish. And then the daughters are like, they're just dolls. And it is kind of yeah, weird. Yeah, they're just there. Yeah. Like they're, yeah. They're pretty. And then they one appear. of them has to show her breasts at the very end yeah. because, of course, yeah. they do. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so awkward. So it's old fashioned. That's why you get that sense it's old fashioned. It, that it's like made well, in the fifties. There's something about it that's not very woke. <laughs> I, I guess it's just, but see, I, like I don't know what your opinion is. Have you seen Lawrence of Arabia? And do you yes. like Lawrence of Arabia? Um, yeah. I mean, you know what? I don't. Besides Alec Guinness trying to be a Saudi Arabian, that's but... the thing. Yeah. Other than brown face, you know what I I will say is that when I watched it, I have it. I own it. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I liked it because it's supposed to be a good epic, or if I actually enjoyed it for itself because there are maybe five scenes in my mind that i can think of but that movie is so fucking long that i don't know if i actually enjoyed the experience of watching it so i have i have sat down and watched it at least twice front to back so i mean so you like that's it saying something yeah i do i mean i have now not seen it for few years. many many years yeah. so but i guess why i'm bringing that up is like Lawrence of Arabia, or if we want to bring in like the Godfather again into the conversation, or any of these like huge long epics, Lord of the Rings maybe is another example. I always try and figure it out like why do those work for me, and then why does this not work for me? And for me, uh, like even though all of those examples are long, and there are stretches of like quote unquote nothing happening, there always feels like there's this sense of driving action there's something active happening in the film and i always kind of understand where we're going to here because i even though i know what the ultimate end is probably going to be because I, I know what ends up with the romanovs or how they end up there just feels like there's all this like Baggage. waiting around and yeah. nothing actually driving action or sitting by the beachside and talking about hemophilia i'm like like it's good to understand what's going on there but like we don't need to have three conversations about hemophilia in this movie to like drive home the fact that your kid has hemophilia. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to blame the director, but when we think about those those classic films, those directors have, in at least in that moment, a strong enough conceptual identity that you get a tone that's like a, a an even tone throughout the whole film. So like The Godfather, which we watched recently, there's something methodical, deliberate, and slow, but because the tone builds within itself for whatever reason, whatever that uh, magic is, uh, it's engaging. Yeah, even when he's picking tomatoes with his grandson, you're watching every yeah. moment of it, expecting something and something happens. I think you brought up an interesting point with all the rewrites. So I don't know if this is Schaffner's fault or the screenplay's fault or the production company's fault, but you're watching an interlace of like 15 different films in this movie. Right. Yeah. I think that's the biggest. Because from what I understand, they, the filmmakers brought in a lot of like the Trotsky and Lenin stuff that is really not focused on in the book. They really just looked at the Romanov specifically. And I, I do kind of think it's to the detriment of this movie because it kind of seems like this side digression that is interesting. And that story itself is fascinating. But is it fascinating for this movie? It is. And I would say no. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's important that they were involved to underpin why the Tsar is going to die, but yeah, having these like uh, moments of collusion in back rooms and talking about double agents, which you don't actually see the resolution of, and 
Um, you know, if right. you have blood, because they basically disappear for like what the last hour of this movie, yeah, and they never show up again. Like, there's like they're there, and then no one ever talks about them ever again. It, that's the thing, you know. We see blood. I, I don't know. It, that's it's very awkward, and they do that classic uh, biopic, a uh, generational biopic thing of characters acting. I mean, I will say the cat, whoever cast this movie and costume, fucking genius. These people actually looked so much like their true historical counterparts yeah. remarkable how close they look to their real life counterparts and just a quick shout out to my my craft uh, i think this is also due to the uh, explosion of photography in the uh, early and mid 1800s that we actually have mm-hmm. photographs to work off of but to find competent actors and mold them into these historic figures in itself is, is an incredible achievement but you know i didn't mind having you know lenin trotsky some like I think Stalin doesn't even have a speaking part. So you have these peripheral things happening that help us understand just how stupid Nicholas was, ignoring the truth, living in his own hubris. That's a good word, right? Living in his own ignorance. And I don't know, maybe that's not historically accurate, but I guess I wanted visually for that to hit home more yeah i kind of wanted to see him in the madness of like i don't know what to do he tried i guess there's that one breakdown scene with him and his wife yeah after he like abdicates but like there's really nothing he's pretty even keel through this movie and then there's that one little breakdown at the end it's like i don't know i want i want to see him more like uh, really just unsure of what to do especially if you're going to like in the writing i think that there's actually some really great lines and moments like there's this conversation kind of at the end where one of his advisors tells him, it's like, they call you Bloody Nicholas. You're not Bloody Nicholas. You're a man with no imagination. And then there's a self-realization that Nicholas has where he says, these are our Russians. I made them. Like, I made the these revolutionaries because of all these decisions I made. But it feels like so hollow because I don't feel like the rest of the movie has really underscored that very effectively. Yeah. I mean, one of the problems with monarchs in general is ego and pride. And uh, mm. I think this is that communist manifesto problem. You know, if you have a, if we're raised to believe that our parents have power because of divine right, <laughs> that God at some point in our lineage came and poked one of our ancestors in the tummy, and then all of a sudden everybody's just better than everybody else. That's partly how I was made. It's, it's such a weird place to be in. And then we learn that his father, Alexander II, is considered one of the great emperors of Russia's, you know, whatever, 200-year history, 150-year history. I mean, uh, you know, that, I don't know, it's toxic masculinity or just cultural masculinity. This idea you got to fill someone's shoes, that the next in line has to be greater than, that's what's killed every empire. (laughs) You know, if you look at all history, it's one great rule, and then they're often followed by a bunch of fucking rubes. And then if they get a second or third uh, peak, it's it's usually three or four generations after. But all of the people in between are trying to one-up whomever came before. And, and I think they, that part's portrayed uh, at least theatrical in this film. He's often called a coward, mm-hmm. uh, generally by his wife, and right. kind of driven <laughs> to just go out and, and swing his dick around, even though everybody's telling him he's got, there's nothing there, we're dying, you know? Why are they fighting in Japan? It's to be fair, it is Russia, so it's the people's dick. It's the people's dick. So. <laughs> well, they're not communists yet, um, but uh, yeah, the whole thing is very. I know. Belabored. I mean, so there's a few different things here. Um, another great line I love is like when they're thinking about going into World War One. Essentially, is uh, one of the advisors saying the victors will be just as damned as the dead. I'm like, oh, that's a great line. 
whether it was ever said in real life, I don't know, but it's a great line to, to give someone to say. That's the post-World War II writing. When we, yeah. when we walk over and we're like, everybody's a loser, except America. Uh, talking about photography, there is a few moments in this movie where it like pauses, it stops, and then seeps all the color out of oh, the image and then shows the a series of photographs. Yeah. I was going to ask you, like, what do you make of that? Because like, I was like, the first time it happened, like, what? what's going on <laughs> like i wasn't sure what was happening I'm, and i don't know why they decided to make that choice well there's no why because it was stupid but i i think it's surrounds... <laughs> well, I mean, there was, someone had to sign off on it yeah someone stupid i think it surrounds the intermission i'm pretty sure that it happens as we crawl towards the intermission and then as we come out of it and i think maybe it's the costume designer <laughs> trying to show off how close these people look like to the original Maybe. i don't know because it's yeah the original photographs i'm pretty sure yeah. is what they're throwing up on screen yeah it's the actual people i uh i thought it was so stupid i thought it broke what was already a fractured experience it really takes you out you know it like you said it's you're just watching it. you're finally kind of buying into it there's a lot of uh there's a lot of action starting to come out just before the first intermission because we've approached bloody sunday we've seen people die we've seen sort of the the, the falling of his authority. And then they're like, bloop, bloop, bloop. All right, take a 10 minute break. And then you come back and they're like, bloop, bloop, bloop. And you're like, what the fuck? What happened? You know, it, it, it didn't serve any purpose to the film. And uh, um, I, I'm sorry to admit that I did skip through the intermission. So I did not listen <laughs> I, to the music. I actually took a walk. I, I, was, <laughs> I needed a break. And as you know, because we watched it together, I watched in two sittings and yep. I, still needed, I still needed a break because uh, this movie's slow. It's, it's very slow. Yeah, very slow. Um, okay, as, as we finish off here, then there's two scenes that I want to talk about in more depth uh, and kind of like their real life counterparts. So the first is the death of Rasputin. Do you know how the death of Rasputin actually happened? I do. In the movie, I will say these, these two foppish men who come into his so like, living quarters, yeah. which apparently in real life, they were gay. They were gay men who came to him and told him to come. Uh, but past that, yeah, do you know how the death of Rasputin actually happened? No, I mean, I've read it once. I don't remember the specifics. All I know is that there were two, I think he told me three attempts or two attempts or whatever it is. So they, this yeah. was not the first. They didn't try to kill him once. Uh, so, no, People were so like there, tired of his shit. There's a lot of like, you know, fantasy slash like urban legends that pop up around this, like about because I think it's been disproven that he, Rasputin was like taking little small bits of poison to like help him survive poisonous attacks. I don't think that's actually true. So uh, in the it's film. It's true in The Princess Bride. It's true in The Princess Bride. Yes, that is true. <laughs> so in real life, he gets invited to this house and the people who are there to kill him are so bad at it that they <laughs> fail a couple of times. So they have a tray of poisoned cakes. Wait a second. You gave me some. Anyways, it, they have this tray of poison cakes and poison tea. And they continually give him the non-poison cakes and the non-poison <laughs> tea. Um, to the point where they uh, like do like the sitcom thing of like knocking the non-poison tea out of his hand accidentally, causing it to break so that they can pour him the, the poison tea. And then they, again, give him the non-poison tea. Anyways, a few different times, they, they fail. Also... Like the way they're portrayed it here, where there was like this lavish party going on next door, not true. Apparently, it was like just like them alone yeah. and this like huge empty warehouse. And Rasputin was kind of catching on because of like the hushed whispers and them going upstairs and pacing back and forth. Anyways, in the background, someone like that's the fucking wrong tea again. You fucking idiot. He eventually gets shot in the back, 
and they're like okay he's dead this is like the true thing that actually happened in this movie so they're like okay he's dead and like the michael myers or uh uh freddy krueger thing where you think he's dead but he actually isn't he pops up and runs off so he actually gets outside he gets outside and they have to follow him and then it becomes like a really bad mob hit right where it's like they wanted to keep this sequestered inside they're chasing after him through the streets of Leningrad or Petrograd, whatever it was called at the time. Finally shoot him. He falls into the river and they say that he drowns, but he probably did like get shot through like the lung or something and died that way. So it gets super messy and super out of hand very, very quickly. Sounds like a great setup for a comedy. It kind of shows that here in this movie, but like the, they're in the movie, they're shown to be much more competent than what they actually were in real life. They were very bad at killing Rasputin. Also, like, psychotic and high. I, I really didn't yeah. enjoy the setup to that. I mean, having him in his office taking advantage of a girl with the aristocrat or whatever he was, a general coming in, that was interesting. But you know what was weird for me is they did a little bit of that time-lapse stuff. So I thought for a second that one of the two foppish men was Alexei. Because he kept calling him your highness. I agree. I actually thought the same thing for a bit. I was like, is this supposed to be? Oh, no, it's like not. 20 no, years not. later. Yeah. And then I was like, no, the, the kid dies in his kid. And then when they're sitting there in, in their cushions and smoking hookah, and I was just like, what? what is going on there? To the history, the butler or whatever does the, the classic pantomime of the evil. You know, he's got the little mustache yeah, and yeah, he's making mustache, funny yeah. faces. And I don't know. I really thought that he was going to get away. And uh, yeah. And then I was kind of hoping they could have, yeah. because uh, I was hoping it was they were going to do it three hours in. So, <laughs> well, I know maybe because I just love Tom Baker so much in this movie. It's like I want him more to do. You ever have him run through the streets and like screaming and yelling and like they're killing me? There is actually also rumors. I don't think ever one hundred percent verified that Rasputin himself was gay. That's been a bit disputed, so I can't say one way or the other. His his daughter vehemently denies that that is the case. But well, who, who do we? Uh, was it Dirk Bogart and uh, something last episode? Uh, it's if it's yeah. a crime, you're not gonna get out and just be out, right? Like people were getting shot That's and right. castrated. And also, I think I, I'd like the hammer and sickle, if you know <laughs> what I mean. <laughs> I think too, if if we look a little bit more loosely at history, you know, homosexuality and. Uh, just living free was much more prominent than, again, these historical writers want us to believe because yeah. they have their own current biases. But many... Well, we all know that homosexuality was invented by Liberace. So that is <laughs> so when 19, it started. It started in 1940-something. It has to do with pianos. It's, it's all pianos' yeah. fault. Um, anyways, what was the other scene that you want to talk about? The very end. So do you, do you know about the assassination of the Romanovs and how it went down? I just know they got shot. So, yeah. Yeah. That's good enough for me. So, yeah. So the, the setup is actually pretty uh, true where they got led down. They had the two chairs. Like they, the they knew probably what was going on. Then the men come in. One of the people says like, here's your death warrant. The thing about it is this. Uh, all the assassins were pretty drunk at the time. And each person was supposed to shoot at a specific person in the family. Except all the people who were told to shoot the girls didn't want to do it because they just like, I don't, I don't want to be the murderer of a little girl. So that's why Nicholas and Alexandra get shot first because like eight people shoot them. And then what happens is because these guys who are coming here are so drunk and like not actually aiming where they're supposed to, they accidentally shoot each other a couple of times. So they, they get wounded. The room fills with all of this like gun smoke. And eventually, yes, they all get assassinated. But after the fact, what happens is 
they really don't want people to find out about this. They really don't want to find out that they were the whole family was, which is why conspiracy theories around this have proliferated. They admit that Nicholas has been killed. And that's what Lennon knows about and he talks about. I don't know if he knew more about it than that, but he definitely addresses like, hey, Nicholas is dead. We can move on with a different system. The guy responsible for disposing of the bodies over a series of days, like, dips them in acid, burns them, chops them up. And then it's like, oh, what I should do is bury them in two separate graves. Again, it's, which is why uh, conspiracy theories are proliferating because like, ooh, like Alexia and Anastasia maybe have uh, survived and are off running and why you have all those people claiming to be like the lost Romanov children. That's probably not true because they've discovered all these things. So the aftermath is like so much more brutal <laughs> of what actually happened to them. And even the assassination actually turned out to be more brutal because the two parents get riddled with bullets first and then kind of all the kids kind of accidentally in quotes get killed off too. I guess uh, my first thought is why, why is it that, and maybe this is propaganda. Why is it that every time we, learn something about Russia, it always seems to be vodka riddled and incompetent, right? There's <laughs> yeah, just I know, something... Yeah, I know, that is... The, there's something about that It's too, weird, probably. right? And I mean, looking at Putin, I don't think that they actually are that uh, prone to making mistakes. There's something very, very calculating about any uh, nation that can take over a world, but when, particularly with historical fiction or historical uh, books, there's something about Russian stories that always involve someone being too drunk or making a mistake, making a hash. It's, it's so strange. Yeah. The other thing Anyways. I was going to say is uh, that is probably the least brutal execution I've heard of. There's uh, there's stories that um, killing squads ended up, for the same reason, mm. uh, having 15 people and half of them had blanks because people couldn't live with themselves. And so, you know, you never know if you actually killed somebody. But when you read about, uh, you know, even what the czar was doing with concentration camps and so if you want to be really brutal, the story I left out with Dirk Borgard, would you like to hear what he said about entering the concentration camp? Why not? All right. So when he walks in, he states, and this was in the 90s because he couldn't speak about it publicly until he was you know, thinking that he was at the end of his life. The first person he encountered was what he believed had to be a woman, but she was so emaciated. The only reason he thought she was a young female is because she had two sagging parts on her chest that mm-hmm. you assume were breasts. Uh, and she was begging him for something to eat. And all of his officers were telling him not to touch her because he would get typhoid. And so I think mm. they thought that she was going to manipulate him into putting him on the truck and all she wanted was like a piece of bread. So he fed her. And then he describes that the bodies of humans were so uh, deteriorated that you could walk through them. Ugh. And even worse, there were people on the bottom that were still alive. And this is why he became uh, a proponent for euthanasia. He said, after I went through that, Putting people out of misery instead of keeping them in suffering is more humane than trying to save terminal patients' lives. Um, But there are stories that he recounts (laughs) that if you want to talk about brutality, I mean, getting shot in front, you know, in front of your parents, that sucks. You know, uh, that's a thing. But uh, what we could all agree that that sucks. Well, but (laughs) I mean, the Russians, uh, the Tsar was building concentration camps. Never mind what we were doing to the to the Jewish people, you know, during World War Two. This idea of torturing people is a human. That's a human trait that's subsisted throughout all history. So we're gross. Boy, what a great happy podcast this was. We're done here. The machine has asked us that we need to wrap up. We should ask our usual questions we ask here at the end. 
Dave, do you think that this film still holds up and is it still culturally relevant? Uh, it doesn't hold up. The movie's a bore. It's not culturally relevant, except that it can give us something to talk about about history. But as a film, it's not. It, it doesn't bring up anything that I need to know about or want to talk about with other uh, with anyone other than you or another nerd that will do background research and get excited about Rasputin. But mm-hmm. uh, no, I, I think this movie, there's a reason why nobody knows this movie exists. Yeah. I, I said no to both of these as well. I, I do think that the Russian Revolution certainly is still culturally Absolutely. relevant. I think yep. that there's things to learn from that. I would love them to update this, like do a Nicholas and Alexandra movie, but with all the stuff we now know, and maybe make it a little bit more dynamic. Like I said, there's these... Uh, Phrase you can tell that the James, um, oh my god, Mangold, not Mangold, Goldman, Goldman, yeah, <laughs> James Goldman is from the theater because there's some very theatrical speeches that happen in here, and so I like some of that layering onto that. It's just, yeah, it's not very engaging through most of this, it's movie, not good, which is kind of yeah, too bad, good. yeah. So, I guess that means we're gonna have to rate this movie, but before we do so, that is what Dave and I thought about Nicholas and Alexandra. What did you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our letterbox page, letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as $1 per month. Of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave us a rating and review on whatever app you choose for podcasts. So let's get to the rating of this movie. Dave, out of five, what would you give Nicholas and Alexandra? I think I'm being a bit apologist here because Tom Baker's good in it. Uh, the costuming and, and casting's great. Uh, I don't know, Oscar-worthy is, is a whole other. Right. And we'll get into debate about what Oscar-worthy means. Even but, means, yeah. yeah. But the movie's so slow and, and meandering and, and fractured. Um, I just feel bad. I think I think it's a two, but I'm beginning to worry, A, that, uh, you know, would I rather watch Shaft again than this? Uh, yeah. And B, uh, I'm not starting off very well in 1971. I'm not really enjoying you, anything. <laughs> I know we've uh, we've had this conversation even off mic. Uh, I, I'm I'm curious the first movie that you actually enjoy. That's going to be a fun moment if that ever happens. As always, I'm a little bit more positive than you, Dave. I'm giving this 2.5. I'm giving it half a star or more. Um, like I, I I've explained this so many times. I find this movie yes boring, but I think boring is different than bad. So am I ever going to watch this movie again? No. Am I going to even remember this movie in a week? Probably not. So it's going to sit there right kind of right in the middle for me as being it is a movie that I sat through that I experienced and I'm probably never going to engage with it ever again. Unlike Death in Venice last week, where it got me so upset (laughs) that it is going to be a one. And I'm going to tell you to my dying day why I think it is a bad movie. Well, that's, you know, to be fair, we still talked about it and I have a feeling it's going to come up again. So that averages out to 2.25. However, let's let's go through this, Dave. Uh, uh, Wait, don't uh, we round technically, down? Technically, technically that two? would place it. What's that? Don't we round down? Isn't it a two? Yes. So th- it'll be a two on Letterboxd. Okay, okay. Now that will place it just by those averages to above Sweet Sweetbacks and below the Omega Man. But I just want to know, is there a play like, 
as we've talked about, um, every movie is a little bit different. Would you rate this above Omega Man and above uh, Andromeda Strain, which is both uh, 2.5? Or do you think that that's where it should stay, is between Omega Man and uh, Sweet Sweet Bax? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. I know you have stronger feelings about Omega Man, but... Uh, I do, I do. Yeah. So Omega Man... I definitely don't stay. think it's better than Omega Man, though. Let's yeah, put it that so way. we can keep it below. Yeah. So entering our list at the number four position, although this will get pushed down most likely as we go through <laughs> Hopefully. this... Uh, is Nicholas and Alexandra? Come on, 1971. Give us, well, give us some, give us some meat. Give us, give us a little, some soy paste. Something. I need a little. Give us something that will give us like wide-eyed wonder as we watch the film. Just some gluten. Let's see what we're watching next week here. Dave, I'm going to push this button. Oh, interesting. We are going to be watching a Clockwork Orange next Ugh, week. All right. <laughs> A movie that I have seen a few times, yeah. and I do enjoy Clockwork Orange, um, but we can have another discussion about uh, Stanley Kubrick and uh, his uh, kind of being an awful person <laughs> on set sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I, um, yeah, I'm interested to watch it. I won't say excited because this movie gives me the heebie-jeebies, um, but it will be interesting. You know, one thing I'll say about 1971 on the avant-garde phase is that mm -hmm. writers and directors are really trying to push uh, push their agendas on you. So this is For the sure. part where I find Nicholas and Alexander the most boring. Uh, it's like <laughs> yeah. apologist and kind of too old fashioned. So now we're gonna flip it on its head and do something where uh, it's intentionally trying to punch you in the in the balls if you're a man, <laughs> or in the face, or I don't know what the right analogy. Kick you in the shin, uh, so, so, somewhere on your anatomy. Clap you on um, the ear. I, I do look forward to it. Um, so sorry, which uh, which cake here? Should I eat the one on the le the one on the le mm my left or your left? Just eat them both. Boy, what a great happy podcast this was.